All right. Well, let's open with a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for this day and for this time bringing us together as a as family, as brothers and sisters in Christ, that we can continue to dive into your word to see what you would what you would have us to know, to understand about you, about your plan, and about how you relate with your people. Father, I pray that the discussion that we have would be fruitful, that it would be glorifying to you. In Jesus' name, amen. So, let's, are we, let me see, this is, oh, there we are. All right, so last week, we finished up week two of one in, in workshopping through Jonah chapter one. Um, and we spent, the, we spent the prior two weeks just observing what's there in the text. Um, context, plate, you know, people, places, characters, situations, um, significant words. Do there seem to be uh, significant themes, maybe more difficult uh, Re, uh, readings of the text are there are there any translation difficulties or translation differences that show up amongst um, translations and we had I think something like 10 or 11 different translations that we looked at and all of them pretty much had the same um, you know the same translation there really weren't any variant translations or or areas of difficulty. Um, and we also attempted to break down and identify the particular units in the text. Um, so today, what we're going to do, we're, we're moving into that next step as we work through inductive Bible study of observation, interpretation, application. We're, in, we're moving into interpretation now. You know, we're, we're moving beyond, we've put in all the groundwork of what's there, what's the information, what's the text that we're working with. Now we're moving into how do we make sense of this? What does this text mean? Not just what did this text mean then and there, although that's where we're going to start. You know, what did this text mean? What did the author intend for this text to mean to the original recipients of this text? And as we move into next week, what does this mean for me here and now? Because what we know, if we, if we go back to our hermeneutical principles at the very beginning, one of the principles is the one meaning principle. That there is typically only one meaning in the text, and that meaning doesn't change. What the text meant 2,500, you know, 3,000 years ago when it was written it means the same thing for me today. Application may be different. So how this applies to me today in the 21st century may apply much differently than what it applied to the original recipients 700 years before Christ. Application may look different, but the meaning is going to be the same. And so our task today is to discern, using the tools of inductive Bible study, to discern 
what the meaning of this text is. And so there are, there are some things that we, that we will make reference to. Um, you know, we will go back, you know, we will refer back to, our, like I said, the various interpretive tools of inductive Bible study to discern what this means. We'll, so we're going to be continuing in Jonah 1. You know, we're, we're continuing to workshop through Jonah chapter 1. We're interpreting what we've previously observed. We won't, you know, our goal today is to not, is not necessarily doing observation or application, although as we go through this, we may make additional observations of the text that maybe weren't apparent to us. And our mind may automatically start moving into, oh, if this is what this means, this is how I apply it. But our goal is to not get stuck on either observation or interpretation today, or observation or application, but really to focus on the interpretive steps. So our steps in, interpret in interpreting the text, the first thing we do is we consider the context. This is fairly similar to what we did in observation, but we'll be taking more of an interpretive approach to context. We'll be doing interpretive correlation. Does what we read in the text show up in other places in scripture? Does it, are there things that repeat itself internally? You know, the significant words and phrases that we identified in week one, well, we'll be looking at what do those mean? Then we'll be doing thematic correlation. Are there themes, are there motifs that show up in Jonah chapter 1 that show up maybe elsewhere in the book of Jonah, that show up elsewhere in the prophets, that show up elsewhere in scripture as a whole? And then this is also where we, in the final step, consultation. There have been a number of people and a number of very learned scholars, very wise scholars, who have done a lot of study on the book of Jonah and will be making use of the tools that we have, that other, you know, the work that others have done to help us understand what this means today. With the goal being that when we get to the end of our interpretive steps, being able to make application to our lives today should hopefully be a relatively straightforward task. So let's dive in. So we've got our context. Context, you know, most of the time our context is typically established in observation, but we come back to it because context is always going to provide the, guard the guardrails and limits to possible meaning. Um, because what the text didn't mean to the original recipients, it's not going to mean to us. And context is going to help provide that, those guardrails of meaning. So there's three different types of context that we want to look at. We want to look at historical context. We also want to look at um, the theological context. And we also want to look at the literary context. So as we read Jonah, what do we know about the historical context? What, what are the situations going on? Do we know from this text what's going on in the world right now? Or what's going on in the world of, of Jonah when these events happened? 
I mean, truthfully, Jonah chapter 1 doesn't give us really any context other than go to Nineveh. Do we know anything about Nineveh? Do we know anything about the world of, of Jonah? The one thing that the text does tell us about Nineveh, they're a great city, okay. and their evil has come up before me. So Nineveh is very large and apparently has committed great sins against the Lord, and God says, okay, I've had enough of this. I'm, I'm fed up. That, so that's our situational context. Mm. City of Nineveh, Nineveh, great city, and they've apparently committed great evil that the Lord has finally said, okay, this is enough. Judgment has come upon you, or, or will come upon you. Go, Jonah, and tell them. And I, I think if, uh, if someone has familiarity with the Scriptures as they're reading this, this is, I, I would be pretty sure the, uh, the language is very similar to Sodom and Gomorrah, mm-hmm. where the, the evil has come up before the Lord, and so he is sending the angel down to basically get Lot out right before judgment yeah. comes. So we've, we've got some type of, and, and actually that will be, um, there's going to be a thematic, that's going to be somewhat of a thematic correlation that we get to. But yeah, so the language is fairly similar to, to Sodom and Gomorrah. So that can even give us a little bit more of a context of this is a bit of the, maybe this is a bit of the situation that's going on. Um, th- sometimes what can help with our historical or the geopolitical or cultural context is, does Jonah show up, the character Jonah, show up anywhere else in the Old Testament? Yes, one time. One, one time in Second Kings. And it makes reference to the prophet Jonah, son of Amittai, during, during the reign of Jeroboam II of Israel. So this is, so what we know from the political context is that this is before the Assyrians captured, um, captured the northern kingdom and deported the ten tribes. Um, this is a time when the world power of the day was Assyria. They were the dominant power in the Near East. Um, and they had been for some time. You know, the, the Assyrians were quite powerful. They had been powerful for a few hundred years at this point. Um, and when we, when we look at the historical context, we know that um, the Assyrians were, were oppressors. They were oppressing the northern kingdom. They had been consistently threatening the northern kingdom, um, exacting tribute from the northern kingdom. Um, so it wasn't, it wasn't a particularly good situation. The, the relationship between the northern kingdom of Israel and the Assyrians weren't good. So even, 
even from Scripture, we don't know we don't know a whole lot because the historical context of Jonah shows up only in one verse, in one other verse in the Old Testament, and then here in the book of Jonah. Now, Jonah, Jonah is referenced in the New Testament, but it's not the historical context of Jonah that's referenced in the New Testament. Is there anything else that we know about the history, the historical, the situational, the cultural, the geopolitical context? Okay. What about any type of literary context? Do, what do we know about just the, the literature, how this is written itself? Is this written in a way that that this is historical narrative? Is this written in symbolic language? And what I mean by that is, is this written in such a way that the structure of the, lit the text itself tells us that this isn't literal, this is more symbolic? Or is this written in more historical narrative that tells us that we should take, when in our interpretation, we should interpret this in a more literal, historical narrative context. I think it's written in historical narrative. Yeah. So what we yeah. So what we would know from Jonah one is that this is written in more historical narrative, that that this should be understood as events that actually happened. You know we in our interpretation of this, we shouldn't really be looking in to interpret this symbolically or figuratively or as meaning something other than what the words on the page are literally telling us that it means. So that's how understanding literary context serves as a guardrail. Because if our interpretation of Jonah chapter 1, if we start going in a more figurative and symbolic route, then we're not in, we're probably not likely to be interpreting this in a way that's true to the text because Jonah chapter 1 isn't written in a way that would lead us to believe that this is obviously symbolic or figurative language now there are definitely other places in the prophetic literature where we can see that oh yeah, okay, this is more symbolic in nature, this is written in more poetical form, um, so we need to understand and interpret the literature in, um, within the rules of that particular genre and context. Jonah 1 is not written in that way. So Jonah chapter 1 is written in more narrative, Is there anything else about the context? That can that can serve as guardrails or an interpretive guide. Can 
mean, the only thing that uh, that's coming to mind at the moment is just recognizing that this is, you know, the Old Testament, right? So we are dealing with, um, you know, Jonah is going to a Gentile people, and that is yeah. going to be pretty significant for us. So I know that's kind of that that is that goes that ties in. That's kind of both historical context and situational context yeah. and with co and covenantal context. Covenantal context, yeah. which this which is kind of where I was going with canonical context. Yeah, it kind of fit. That's that's where we're at in the unfolding of history. Absolutely, and that that's. That's a significant part of the context that this is Old Testament. This is Old Testament prophets. This is old, you know, within the greater covenantal context, this is Old Covenant, or this is, yeah, this is Mosaic Covenant. You know, Mosaic Law, Mosaic Covenant is still very much in effect. This is a Jewish prophet who is being sent to a Gentile people to prophesy to them. That's a pretty significant thing. And because we know that the literary context is this should be understood as historical narrative, you know, the rules of interpreting and understanding historical narrative, this isn't symbolic. This isn't like, oh, well, you know, Jonah is, he's going out as a missionary. Like, maybe that's application. But the historical context is, look, this is a guy, this is a prophet of the, you know, a prophet of God, of the old covenant, going to a people who were not part of that covenant. That's huge. In fact, if we look through, if, if we take a quick scan of, all of the Old Testament prophets. This is just a real quick recollection off the top of my head. And Ken, correct me if I'm wrong. I don't know that we have any uh, documentation of any of the other Old Testament prophets being sent to a non-Jewish people. I, I can't think of any right off the top of my head. No, I, I do you believe that's correct. The only other uh, thing that we could say is there are edicts of judgment issued against Gentile peoples. Sure. But as far as a prophet who is sent uh, to cry out against it with the thought that they would repent and God would relent, this is pretty unique. Yeah, that within the prophetic, within the prophetic literature, within the the canonical, that's another part of the canonical context. Jonah is a very unique book within the canon of Scripture in that this is a prophet who was sent to a, non, a prophet of God under the Mosaic Covenant who was sent to a people not part of that covenant. That's pretty significant. So then we also look at the theological context. You know, we already talked a bit about the covenantal context, that this is, this is Old Covenant, this is Mosaic Covenant. Um, are there themes that show up? How does this, also how does this contribute into God's, un, 
or what do we see further in God's unfolding plan of how he relates to his people or how he relates to his creation? You know, we saw some of the theme, the thematic context and what Ken brought up earlier, and we'll pick up a little bit later when we do thematic correlation. This idea of their evil has come up before me has echoes of Sodom and Gomorrah. The same words were used, their evil has come up before me. It's old covenant. What do we, so what do we see about within God's, un, the, God's unfolding revelation to his people? Do we see anything unique? Do we learn anything new or do we see anything new in Jonah that we don't necessarily see prior to this? I think maybe in the what in seeing that this is a this is a Jewish prophet that's being sent to a Gentile people. This isn't this is not fully fleshed out in Jonah. This is not this is not fully explained, but we see these echoes that maybe God has a bigger plan for for the Gentile nations. I mean, we see, we've seen throughout the Old Testament up to this point that, yes, you know, God has a plan for his nation, Israel. But we don't see a whole lot of, does God have a plan for his, does God have a bigger plan for not the nation of Israel? And we, begin, we see a little bit in here of, oh, maybe there's a little bit more, maybe there's a, a bigger plan that God has that isn't explained really beyond that other than you know, God's sending a prophet to not Israel. Okay, so we learn, maybe we learn a little bit there. So what this context does is this context serves as guardrails. You know, if, our, if our interpretation falls outside of that context, it's a pretty good indication that maybe we're off in our interpretation and we need to come back. After we identify context, we do interpretive correlation. This is where we correlate what shows up in a text with other texts of scripture. Do we see these things coming up in other places? And the reason we do this, again, serves as further guardrails because if we're interpreting the text in a way that contradicts other texts of scripture, we need to go back to the drawing board and re-examine our interpretation because when we go back to our hermeneutical principles, there's not just the one meaning principle, but there's also the harmony principle. That what's revealed in one text of scripture will be at harmony and not contradict other texts of scripture. So when we're interpreting, when we're identifying correlations with other parts of Scripture, as we really begin to zero in on the meaning, you know, what does Jonah chapter 1 have for us? What does it mean? How does this apply? 
other texts of Scripture are going to serve as our guardrails. Because if we're interpreting Jonah chapter 1 in a way that is at odds with other texts of Scripture, our interpretation's off. Because Scripture will be in harmony with itself. So, does anything in the text of Jonah chapter 1 correlate with other parts of Scripture? Do we see, are there words, phrases, theme, words and phrases, texts within Jonah 1 that show up elsewhere? I think, Ken, you brought it up, the phrase, their evil has come up before me. That shows up, Sodom and Gomorrah is probably one of the most obvious ones. I don't, even, I don't think it, that's the only time that that phrase shows up, though, if I'm... That's a, that seems to be a common phrase, but we, again, we think you know, Sodom and Gomorrah is a common, is probably the big one. Do we know if Jonah's mentioned in any other context? We talked about how within the historical context, Jonah shows up in 2 Kings. Um, Jonah, Jonah is mentioned by way of the sign of Jonah by Jesus in the New Testament when he's rebuking the Pharisees. By the way, the book of Jonah, 2 Kings, and then rebuking of the Pharisees are the only three times in Scripture that Jonah shows up. So we don't, we don't even have a whole lot of, you know, Jonah's not one of those prophets that shows up a lot. <laughs> you know, it's not like Isaiah, where, you know, Isaiah shows up everywhere. Or, or Ezekiel, you know, these, we think of these very major prophets that show up all over the place. Jonah's not one of those. Are there other times in Scripture where we see um, where we see similar events happening? I mean, we we talked about this. Is probably the only time in Scripture that's recorded that God sends a prophet of Israel to a Gentile nation. So we don't even really have we don't have a lot as far as as far as interpretive correlation to go on with Jonah chapter 1 because there are a number of things that are quite unique within the book of Jonah. Which honestly can make Jonah not, can make Jonah chapter 1 not the easiest text in the world to make sense of because there are a number of things that don't really show up anywhere else within the book of Jonah. 
that doesn't mean that we can't that we can't discern what the meaning is but it means we don't have a whole lot to go on we know that this is really the historical context of this is that um, this is a time when Israel is under oppression from the Assyrians the Assyrians were not the friends of Israel, so not only are they not Jewish, they are also actively oppressing the Jews. So that, so that God would send a, a prophet of the Israelites to not just a Gentile nation, but a Gentile nation that was actively opposing the Jews, again, pretty significant thing. We talked, you know, we also talked about in our interpretive or in our observation section, significant words and phrases. Um, were there, are there significant words and phrases that show up in the text that knowing the meanings of these words and phrases could increase our understanding or could change our understanding of this text? So one of the phrases that you identified, Ken, was, for their evil has come up before me. Knowing that that shows up elsewhere in Scripture as kind of the opening lines of a pronouncement of judgment is pretty significant. And no, you know, but are there other words I think one of the some of the words that we identified, um, hurling, that word shows up a couple times. Um, there was the phrase that showed up repeatedly throughout that the sea grew more more tempestuous. This isn't just a little bit of a blowing on the sea. This isn't just a little bit of a wind. Are there words in the text that are difficult to understand? Do there seem to be words in here that have particularly significant theological weight to them? You know, sometimes when we read through a text of scripture, we'll see words like uh, righteousness, um, propitiation, salvation, redemption, these words that, especially from a New Testament context, seem to be really significant, weighty words, that there's a lot of, there's a lot of theological meaning in those words. So, you know, understanding what those words mean could probably increase our understanding. Are there words in Jonah chapter 1 that if we knew more about what the meaning of those words are, could increase our understanding of the text. I'll say the phrase, the presence of the Lord, would be a pretty significant one theologically. Okay. 
where the, what does it mean that Jonah is fleeing from the presence of the Lord? Uh, that phrase is used three times. Um, first in the opening paragraph, uh, so twice in verse 3 and then once down in verse 10, uh, when the men are afraid because he's fleeing from the presence of the Lord. Uh, there's a couple different set kinds of fear mentioned here. So there's a lot of fear. The, the mariners are afraid. Uh, then they were exceedingly afraid, and then they feared the Lord exceedingly. And Jonah says in verse 9, I'm a Hebrew, I fear the Lord. And uh, the concept of fearing the Lord, there's two kinds of fear, say, right? It there's, seems like there's yeah. the same word, but there's two types of fear. Mm -hmm. So probably differentiating between those two types of fear can help us understand this text a little better. Yeah. Okay. So the phrase, yeah, the presence of the Lord. It's interesting to note that the people on the ship had a different idea of evil. They recognized this this uh, storm is being evil, but yet they don't seem to recognize the evil that they have committed in the past against the Israelites. This is in verse 7, or 7 and 8. And 8, he says, Then they said to him, Tell us whose account this evil has come upon us. They're stating that this evil... That this was evil, and God's the one that sent this upon them. So yeah. they seem they seem to recognize that what's ha what's come upon them is a judgment of some sort for some type of evil, even if they don't understand the bigger context and who sent it. They seem to at least recognize that this is not just your ordinary storm. Right, they recognize mistakenly that this was evil yeah. the storm wasn't evil it was their actions that were evil yeah in the past just to connect with that the they they are identifying a situation as evil and yet they're overlooking their own evil of idolatry just a couple verses earlier when they're just like oh whatever your god is call out to him maybe he'll have mercy on us yeah you now they're 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 just you know rise call out to your God and in the ESV it's in the lowercase G because yeah the the mariners aren't recognizing Yahweh just whoever your God is we're all doing this we're all crying out to our gods so they don't they don't see the evil of that their own idolatry and yet they're looking at a situation of a storm as evil that has come upon them and interestingly enough that in some way in the text seems to, there's a certain irony there but even then that seems to almost be background information because what we what we learn as we read through the storm wasn't sent in response as a judgment on the mariners although they certainly were committing idolatry and not worshiping the one true god that's the context is that's not the reason the storm was sent. The storm was sent by Yahweh, the one true God, because one of his prophets was in direct defiance of him. Mm 
So it's an interesting, they were doing this, but that wasn't the judgment on the mariners for their idolatry. Um, I want to come back to that phrase, the presence of the Lord, because he said that shows up a couple of times. What do we know about that phrase, the presence of the Lord? How, would, how should we interpret that in order to best understand this text? Should this be understood as a literal, you know, God came down and stood in front of Jonah and said, Jonah, go here. And Jonah turns around and runs away. So, I'm not here. You can't get me. Is that how we should understand fleeing the presence of the Lord? How should we understand this? What do we know? Do we know anything about the phrase, the presence of the Lord? Do you, I see you have a, I see you have a study Bible open, Jess. Do, do you have a note in there at all that explains or provides insight on the phrase, the presence of the Lord? Flee from the presence of the Lord is an attempt, to, is to attempt the impossible since God is everywhere, though people still try. We're looking for? Possibly. No, I was looking for a map of Nineveh, Tarshish, and Joppa. Okay. And there's not one in the Bible. But there's one in the internet. I have a note here that it's talking about the presence of the Lord of possibly Jonah's attempt to flee the manifest presence of the Lord at the temple in Jerusalem. Although we're not told that Jonah's in Jerusalem, so maybe that's a little bit of a stretch, or maybe you know, flee the land of his, of God's people. I'm so tempted to just go on like a 15-minute talk about this right now, but I'm resisting that urge. Uh, I've, I've recently you got two minutes. I know, I know. <laughs> Uh, I recently did a pretty interesting study that really tied in and touched in with the concept of the presence of the Lord from Exodus 33 and 34, where Moses is up on the mountain, and this is right after the golden calf incident, and there's judgment that's come, and God's like, all right, I'm going to wipe out these people, and Moses prays, Lord, please don't do that, and God says, okay, fine, I'll take you into land, but I'm not going to go with you. I'll send my angel, he'll lead you in the land, but I'm not going to personally go. And Moses is, and all the people are absolutely distraught, and Moses gets to the point where he says, look, if you aren't going to lead us, don't, don't, we're not interested in going. If it's either with you or we're not going at all, we need your presence with us. And God eventually says, all right, my presence will be with you. And that's the lead up into Moses' request, show me your glory. He wanted a tangible expression of the presence of the Lord. And that's where we see up on the mountain. Uh, Moses is up on the mountain and God puts him in the cleft of the rock and reveals his glory to Moses up there on the mountain. <sighs> now, I, I, I could go on and talk yeah. about that a lot more, but, but that, that's a very interesting concept of just the, the significance of the presence of the Lord. It's not just about 
the physical manifestation of the presence of the Lord, but there's the concept of fellowship with the Lord. And now Jonah is fleeing the presence of the Lord. He's really fleeing the fellowship and and company of the Lord in the sense of of being right with his Lord. Yeah. That's significant. So, yeah. So this idea of the presence of the Lord, this is... There, there's, a, there's some theological meat to not just, okay, God, don't talk to me. It's, it's this idea of fleeing the fellowship of the Lord. And, and as you're talking about that, there's a, certain, there's a certain irony that oftentimes when one is standing in the presence of the Lord, you know, our response is fear. But it's not fear. I mean, sometimes it's, I mean, we see... We see some people's response, you know, the, you know, woe to me. You know, I've seen the face of God. I'm dead. I, I'm a doomed man. But the type of fear that we see in the presence of the Lord is a decidedly different fear than what we see outside the presence of the Lord. Mm-hmm. And we see both types of fear here in Jonah chapter 1. The fear that one has within the presence of the Lord of we begin to understand just how small we are in compared to how great God is. But there's a fellowship there that should bring us great comfort. But to flee the presence of the Lord brings abject terror, fear. I'm scared. But I'm not scared that I'm going to, I'm scared. Almost like I'm scared of life. Jess, you look like you have oh, some. Stuff, it's, kind of, it's on topic, but it's not. Okay. Um, so I'm looking, I'm looking at our time, and we're like two minutes over, and we got. So next week will be week two of one again. <laughs> this is only our first week on interpretation. Oh, okay, okay. So. But as we keep these things in mind, you know, what the historical guardrails where we see things popping up previously, you know, different interpretive considerations, and then we see this, this lexical contextual analysis, this phrase, the presence of the Lord, to flee the presence of the Lord, that Jonah's not just trying to get away, okay, God, don't talk to me, I don't, because... If, we're look, if we look at it in that route, there's a certain degree of futility. No, there's not a certain degree of futility. There's a great deal of futility in how do I get away from the presence of the Lord. You know, we, we see the psalmist talk about, you know, if I climb a mountain, you're there. If I descend into the depths of Sheol, you're there. So we know, can't get away from God. But when we understand that the presence of the Lord is more than just where God is, but it's a fellowship, what we basically see here is Jonah trying to, I think we can probably start drawing the conclusion that Jonah's not just trying to get away from God. He's basically trying to say, I don't want to be your prophet anymore. I'm done. <laughs> You're telling me to go to... Mm-mm, you've picked the wrong guy. I'm done. I'm not your prophet. I quit. Um, <laughs> yeah. So 
yeah, we begin to, so we then begin to maybe see a, you know, if we understand that that's what Jonah's doing, we, as we go through Jonah chapter 1, we begin to see that that, me telling God, I'm done, I'm not going to be your prophet, I'm not going to be your messenger, Mm-mm. I'm breaking that, I'm going to break that fellowship with you. That doesn't work out well. <laughs> it really doesn't work out well. So, next week we're going to pick up on thematic correlation and we'll be looking at how to, you know, con- a consultation. We've done a little bit of consultation as we've been going through, you know, looking at. Um, some of the footnotes, you know, what other biblical scholars uh, and Christians have had to say over the years about what does this mean. So consultation, as we'll begin to see, isn't really a set step as much as it is an additional tool that, we'll at, that we use as we go throughout these steps. Um, but by the end of identifying you know, next week with thematic correlation, we should be at a pretty good place where what the meaning of Jonah chapter 1 should be fairly straightforward. I'm not necessarily, maybe straightforward is the wrong phrase, but it should be much clearer to us what the meaning is of Jonah chapter 1 so that when we move into application, you know, what the text meant then and there, that's where we're at right now. Interpretation really is what does the text what did the text mean then and there from the author to the original recipients as we move into application of okay, if that's the meaning then and there, what does this mean for me here and now 2800 years later? So let's let's close in a word of prayer. Father, I thank you for this day and for this time that we can continue to dig into the book of Jonah in chapter 1 and beginning to see everything that's, that you have there for us, maybe for the first time seeing it with a different set of eyes. Um, you know, many of us have, we are quite familiar with the story of Jonah, but maybe we've never really dug deep into what it what's there, what you have for your people. And Father, I just thank you for the time and the opportunity that we can do that. As we move now into our, our time of worshiping you in both in song and in the word, I pray, Father, that you would bless the time, bless the gathering that we have here today, and that, that our worship would be pleasing and glorifying to you. In Jesus' name, 